you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. And I'm Michael, back to have some fun with you, hopefully with a uh, better audio setup. I've been playing with it, which might be good, might be bad, so you'll have to see if you can actually hear this better. But either way, I have come to you this week to tell you that God makes the rules and the writings, not you. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because we're going to deal with everybody's favorite church history, heretic, a man by the name of Marcion. And if you really want to be technical and make him French, I guess you could be Marcion, which is a little bit more fun to say, but you have to have a croissant when you say it like that. So that's just one of the rules. I don't make them. I just abide by them. Now, why is he everybody's favorite? Well, this is really easy. Maybe it's because Marcion is the most aggravating heretic in church history. The reason I say he's aggravating is because his heresy is not overly complex, it's relatively easy to refute, and yet it will not go away. I mean, at all. Not not even a little bit. And if you can wrap your brain around that, then you are doing way better than I am. God bless you. Uh, write a book, publish it, sell zillions of copies, and we'll all be rich and be happy, 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 joy, joy, joy all the time. All right. Now, who are we talking about in case you have no earthly idea? Well, Marcion is a dude living around the turn of the second century, so somewhere in the 80s to somewhere in the 160s. He's from the region of Pontus, which is modern-day Turkey. And yes, if you do any work in church history dealing with the first and second century, you will deal with a lot of people, places, and things from the area of modern-day Turkey. Just deal with it. Now, somewhere around the 130s, Marcion travels and arrives in Rome. He makes a sizable donation to the church, thereby giving himself, uh, granting himself, I guess, a hearing and a, the ear of some of the people. His teaching spreads. It gains a little bit of a foothold. He is excommunicated, condemned as a heretic, kicked out of Rome, and his gift is returned to him by 144 A.D., didn't even make it 15 years. What in the world was he trying to teach that was, you know, that got such a swift reaction by, by ancient standards anyway? He had a background influence from the Simonians who traced their lineage back to Simon Magus of Acts chapter 8. Remember the, uh, the magician who tried to buy the ability to grant the Holy Spirit? That was a, uh, an early Gnostic sect that had... Uh, syncretistic beliefs, so the merging of multiple religions. He's also influenced by early docetism, which at some point we will have to cover because that will be fun. Marcion is credited with one of the first canons of the church, and we're going to address why I don't say the first canon of the church in a little while. His, uh, his canon consisted of a highly edited uh, portion of the Gospel of Luke, uh, which basically eliminated pretty much all of the uh, Jewish parts of Jesus, so I, you can imagine how edited that was, as well as an amended collection of Paul's epistles, most notably without the pastoral epistles, so First and Second Timothy and Titus. Yep. <sighs> the reason he did this is because 
he viewed Scripture ditheistically, and we need to make sense of that. He had a belief that Scripture was the product of two differing gods, a dichotomistic system containing differing deities of based on testament. So you had the Yahweh of the Old Testament, who was a mean, old, nasty, wrathful God, and then you had Jesus, who was spawned by a God that was higher than Yahweh, who was in the New Testament, full of grace, mercy, love, peace, joy, happiness, all that good stuff that we uh, that we long for, like, and enjoy and define as Christianity. Now, this should, I say should, enable you to see right off the bat why this is so easy to deal with. I mean, we call this guy a heretic, plain and simple, and this is why he was condemned as such relatively quickly in the ancient church. You, you can't reject the unity of Scripture without undermining Scripture itself. His ditheistic system not only splits the testaments, but it creates a history of God's people that doesn't function. It doesn't have a completion when you get from the Old Testament. I mean, think about this. The Old Testament is basically a book without an ending. The New Testament, conversely, is basically a book without a beginning. Without the unity of Scripture, you cannot have meaningfully Christian, read biblical when I say that, doctrine. So when Jesus is rescuing us from sin, what sin? Where did it come from? How do we define it? Oh, you define it by a law. Well, what is this law? Where does it come from? What do you mean judgment? Who's the judge? What's the rules? What's the standard? I mean, none of these questions or any of the 17,000 other questions that I could be asking are answerable without the connectedness of the Old and the New Testament. The New Testament fulfills what the Old Testament leaves. The Old Testament leads to what the New Testament fulfills. Marcion loses that. Now, also troubling is Marcion's acceptance of fringe and really just downright heretical theological systems. Excuse Excuse me. The syncretism of the Simonians, which is a merging of Christianity with other non-biblical false religions, it gives the rise to an easy acceptance of his docetism and their dualistic rejection of the physical in hope of the spiritual. Again, we've got to cover the uh, the docetists at a, at a later time. This is they're they're too important, and you'll see them way too often to just ignore them. Now, their underlying. Um, how do you say this, desecration of the physical world and the bodies, really, forces the believers to reject fundamental core doctrines. And what I mean by that, I mean things like the virgin birth, the physical death of Jesus by crucifixion, the bodily resurrection of Christ. In a, in a docetistic system, you have, which is really a, a dualistic system, you have spiritual good, physical bad, and that is a ravaging oversimplification of the doctrine, but just go with it for right now. Um, so anything physical is bad. Therefore, if Jesus is good, he can't possibly be physical, which means he can't actually be born. He kind of appears. He occupies a body. We covered a little bit, a bit, a little bit of this. Uh, was it when we deal with the modalists? If not, um, just listen to all the presentations. It'll be good for you. Um, Without the virgin birth, you don't have a physical body. You don't have a legitimate temptation. You don't have a legitimate overcoming of sin. You don't have a attempted as we are and always and yet without sin. You can't have any of that because you don't actually have a man. You have a, a modified being is what I guess the best way to phrase it. 
And if you don't have a real birth, you don't have a real life, you don't have a real temptation, you don't have a real overcoming, you don't also have a real death, which means you do not have a real resurrection, which means Jesus didn't really accomplish anything for his people. He just kind of pointed them in a way, which is why most Gnosticism finds its, um, well, not Gnosticism, but Docetism is a type of Gnosticism, but while most of this finds its fulfillment in what we would call new age today, where the self, you are really the center of everything because there can't be another center outside of you. As you dig into this, you can see why he was so quickly condemned. And when I say quickly, I've said this a couple times already, I'm going to reiterate it, by ancient standards. I mean, I know what you're saying. If this dude showed up in my church today, we would let him teach like three Sunday school classes. And once we realized what he was teaching, he would be out so fast it wouldn't even be funny. Like you don't make it months, much less over a decade without being excommunicated. But you, you got to remember, the ancient world doesn't have cell phones, fax machines. I mean, we're, we're seriously operating with smoke signals and carrier pigeons here, people. We have to account for the slowness. We also have to account for the patience and grace of the ancient church. They were much better at this than we are. They worked slower. They moved slower. They thought better on these things. They weighed heavily and deeply so that when they worked and moved, they were much more certain than we are today. And that's, that's to their credit and our shame. But just the amount of time taken to confer with another bishop, to send a letter out, to bring people together, that takes time. And it takes a long time by modern comparison, whereas I can send off an email and have people responding to things in minutes. For them, it would be days, weeks, months. So organizing things could take a year or more. And that's just in when things are going good, when if there's a problem, you know, the road's washed out, there's a famine, somebody miscade, all sorts of things could go wrong, excuse me, leading to the time frames that we're dealing with. So he was condemned quickly, and I say roundly because like, if you wanted to like get your bona fides in the second century, you condemned Marcion. Uh, Justin Martyr's first apology, which is written between 155 and 157, condemns the teachings in chapter 58. Irenaeus, in his work against heresies in 180, specifically book 1, chapter 27, if you want to look it up, you can. It's online. I encourage you to read them. He outlines and condemns the teaching of both Marcion and the men who inspired him, so the Simonians, the Docetists, etc., Tertullian, written uh, somewhere around one, well, who lived between 155 and 224. No, I left out a number. I'm sorry. I wrote that down so I wouldn't mess it up. I still mess it up. It's not 224. It's 240. Likewise condemned Marcion. This is important because if you notice anything, uh, Justin Martyr, 155 to 157, Irenaeus, 180, Tertullian writing after, more than likely after 200, all of these men wrote after, and in most cases, well after the refutation, condemnation, and excommunication of Marcion, which, reminder, was in 144. This is, again, why this heresy is so aggravating. It won't leave. I mean, it just, it just will not go away. It just tentacles into somebody's brain, and it stays there. And as proof of that, even today, we have this same issue— Evangelical Christians, and, and I use that term loosely in some of these cases, people like the red letter groups, antinomians, anti-Semitic churches, think, um, think the Aryan race brotherhood, Aryan races, Aryan brotherhood groups, and even milder Aryan churches, the ones that, the, the dispensational churches that are hyper-dispensationalists. I love you, my dispensational friends. I disagree with you on a lot of things, but I love you, love you, love you. 
when they venture into hyper-dispensationalism and come into a, uh, an anti-Semitic function, this is the, the fruit, this is the long-term uh, outcome of what Marcion taught and believed. They're still here. These groups have all championed, in one way or another, the idea of a minimized Old Testament, which highlights a lack of understanding of a law-grace distinction. This is the problem. This is a rejection of the unity of Scripture. It's a following in the footsteps of Marcion, and it truncates the faith as well as the gospel in favor of what is really way too popular today, which is what we call a mere Christian movement. Mere Christianity is an awesome book by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read it, read it. It will do your soul, heart, and mind good. In it, he lays out the bare-bones minimum standards for Christianity. This is good. The problem is, if that becomes not just the entry level, but it becomes the totality of what we define as Christian, we are no longer seeking through the entire counsel of God. We are no longer preaching the fullness of the revelation of Christ, and we have wandered not off the highway. We are over the ditch, we are in the field, and we are digging a hole that is deeper. Excuse me once again. I don't know if you can hear those coughs. Every time you hear me say excuse me, if you don't hear it, it's because I've had to turn and cough. This is what happens when you never fully recover from laryngitis, which at this point would have been seven years ago. You get a chronic cough and dry throat, which is why I'm always carrying water, drinking water, if you can hear it, and coughing. So when I apologize, if you didn't hear it, that's why. And I'm sorry, I can't help it. I want to stop doing it, but I can't. So if mere Christianity is your only definition of Christianity, you do not have a definition of Christianity. We should be able to argue well and deeply about the deep things of theology. You should have an opinion about these things and be able to defend them. If you can't, then do the work of a disciple and form an opinion. So how do we correct this? Like, I know we've already started down that road a little bit, but what I want to make sure we do is... Whenever we're dealing with any theology or philosophy or worldview, we want to go after the most foundational problem that it creates. And we need to train ourselves to do this, to get to the meat of a problem and attack, not the person presenting it or even the way they're presenting or in some instances what they're actually presenting. We want to instead actually get to the foundation of what is being presented. So often, this is why I made mention Marcion's truncated canon. It came from a ditheistic understanding of God in Scripture. So he edits Scripture based on something else. To attack the canon would have been to miss the argument. This is what we need to do with atheists, agnostics, deists, heretics of every stripe, and we need to train ourselves to do this day in and day out. And a good way to do that is actually see the foundational problems of heresies of the past. And the reason I say that is because it's, it's like a walkthrough on a video game. Like you're playing one of those silly little computer puzzle games and you can't figure it out, so you go to YouTube and you find the walkthrough and you're like, oh, that's how you do it. And like something you've messed with for half an hour, when you finally see how to solve the problem, you're like, well, I feel like a moron. Why didn't I solve this? Ancient heresies help you with this because we can see how they were refuted and see how that refutation stands through the years. 
that enables us to kind of backfill our own brains with the knowledge and the wisdom that we need so that when we are confronted with it again, we have kind of already got a skeleton structure built that enables us to drill down. Now, in Marcion's case, I think the foundational problem that we have to get to as it is unfortunately with most of the early heresies, is the identity of Jesus, specifically the deity of Jesus. And if you know anything we've looked at before, and if you've listened to me for any length of time, and if you haven't, then I encourage you to go back and listen to old episodes. You can find some old sermons as we've been trying to get some of that information out there. You'll know our three our three clobber verses for this, our, th- our three biggies. John 1, 1, John 1, 1 through 3, catalogs the early, the yeah, early, the eternal and early existence of the word, and then later in chapter 1 identifies that word as coming in the flesh of Jesus. So you have John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And no, the Jehovah's Witnesses are not correct. The Greek in in that verse actually emphasizes the deity of the word. It doesn't de-emphasize it. That's a good one to have in your pocket. Colossians 1, 15 through 18, lays out the unity of God with I'm sorry, with unity of God the Father with the identity of Jesus as a man. He is labeled as creator, and he is also labeled as sustainer. This is good. So Jesus the man is the creator and the sustainer, meaning he is God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, likewise displays the Son as the heir of all things, as the holder of dominion. So think back through your Old Testament. What is one of the hallmarks of God? He is the sovereign ruler. That's what's demonstrated time in and time out in the Old Testament. And if you want a Cliff Notes book on that, read Daniel. Daniel 1 through really 7 especially demonstrates this, and in Daniel 7 you'll even see the Son of Man being given the dominion of the Ancient of Days, who is God Most High. Hebrews 1 harkens back to that, demonstrates Christ as the demonstrator of the glory of God and as the one who sustains all things. Again, operating in the function, form, and power of God is Christ. Now, beyond just these verses, if you want a better testimony or a more full testimony, I guess would be a better way to say that, read the Gospel of John. It's actually not that long. You can do it in a sitting. If you you know you plow through like an hour and a half, two hours, you can read the Gospel of John. Now, if you want an even more specific one, go to chapter ten. What is Jesus doing in there? That's the uh, the Good Shepherd section. You know, the thief comes to steal and destroy. I come that they have may have life and have it abundantly. What is he continually doing in that chapter? He's being clear that he and the Father are the co-workers in this. That's one of the punchlines. Um, verse thirty-three. You get down to I and the Father are one. I'm sorry, that's verse thirty, and then they get the response afterwards. What happens when Jesus says that? They pick up stones to stone him. Why did they attempt such an action? The modern will tell you, well, you see, the, the, the Jews of, it, of Jesus' day didn't really understand his claims to deity. Uh, Au contraire, mon frère, John 10. They're not picking up stones to stone him because they misunderstand him or they think his message is unclear. They're picking up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he said and they understood exactly what he, what he said. He was claiming equality and sameness with God. To the Jewish ear of the first century, obsessed with the exclusivity and singularity of Yahweh. This is a high blasphemy that is deserving of death. But, Christian, to our believing ear, thankful for the delivering work of God through Christ in accordance with the plan of Yahweh, this is the greatest, I mean the greatest comfort and joy imaginable. 
That's your first step with Marcion, understanding a biblical definition of who Christ is and then dealing with the other things. The other things are what flows from that, namely the canon. We have to deal with the unity of Scripture. Now, we have a formula for this. You've probably heard me say it before. If you haven't, I apologize. You're going to hear it now. 66 books, 40 writers, over 40 writers, 1,600 years, just about, of composition, three languages, three continents, one timeless and consistent story. That alone should be enough to warrant a connection of the Old and New Testament. But, as they say in the middle of the night infomercials, wait, there's more! Jesus connects personally his ministry and teaching to the Old Testament. Read Matthew 5. This is what the Sermon on the Mount does so stinking well, specifically 15, uh, 17 through 19. He doesn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He specially affirms the law of God, and then later on in Matthew 5, using the law as a springboard shows the reality of sin to his hearers. He is constantly and continually pointing his listeners to the reality that he is the fulfillment of the writings of the Tanakh, the Torah, the Netavim, and the Ketuvim what we would call the Old Testament, and that he was the one to whom we should look. You see this again in John. If you go to John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but it is these that testify about me. John 5 especially is good for that. You believe Moses. If you believe in Moses, you should believe me because Moses wrote about me. See, this is part of the lesson also you get with the rich man and Lazarus. If they won't listen to Moses, they won't believe even if someone rises from the dead. This is what Moses and the prophets were pointing to. We have consistency throughout the scriptures from Old to New Testament. And we also have this in the consistency of judgment. I want to make sure we cover this because this answers the ditheism of Marcionism. We don't have one judging God of the Old Testament and one graceful God in the New Testament. Yes, there's judgment in the Old Testament. Israel was a means of God's judgment. Babylon, Persia, all of these nations were means of God's judgment, how he, how he accomplishes. Read Isaiah, read Habakkuk, uh, read Joshua, but even before that, read Genesis. You see God judging directly. So there's no around this. God is the just judge of the Old Testament. But similarly, the New Testament contains the same idea. Matthew 24, Luke 17, Jesus claims what? The judgment of God, the power to judge is going to be given to the Son. And this is fully realized when you get to the end of Revelation, specifically chapters 19 and 20, where you see what? The Son of Man, the Son of God, the slain Lamb as the just judge of all the earth. <coughs> Excuse me. This gives you a consistency from Old to New Testament. You also have a litany of references to the Old Testament by New Testament authors. Read a New Testament book, I dare you, and find one that does not contain either direct quotation or indirect allusion to Old Testament teaching. I mean, this is just one of those, duh, you, you can't read Paul without having a functioning working knowledge of the Old Testament. And if you do, he won't make any sense because he's constantly pointing back to it. You can't understand Christ in light of a functioning knowledge of the Old Testament because Jesus is constantly pointing back to it. Beyond just that, we have the, the dual writing nature of Scripture. 
confirmed in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Uh, things like Second Peter chapter one: No prophecy was an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke of God. You also have the further recognition that the writings of contemporary apostles in the New Testament time were inspired by God in the same manner and for the same purpose and reason as the prophets of the Old Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. That's Second um, Peter 3, talking about this, that, that uh, deluded men twist the words of Paul as they do the rest of Scripture. This is why Paul's works and Peter's writings are held down, are handed down, because they are held by the churches as the apostolic witness. And that's the last thing we're going to get to, this idea of standard. When we discuss the canon of Scripture, we are discussing the listing of which books are authoritative, the ones that theoretically prove the rule. That's what the canon is. It's a rule. And the rule is defined by who? <laughs> That's right. The cornerstone and foundation of our faith is Christ. Now that is handed down to us by his chosen teachers, the apostles. Hence the reason every, every, every New Testament book is from an apostle or one of their companions. So do your list. Uh, Matthew, apostle, Mark, uh, traveling companion of Paul, compiler of the teachings of Peter, according to ancient history. Luke, traveling companion of Paul, who tells you he got to interview people as he was traveling from Jerusalem to Rome with Paul. He ran across everybody that he could interview and catalog. John, an apostle. Acts, written by Luke, already covered that. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Philemon, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. Paul, an apostle. Uh, Hebrews, I think it's a sermon of Paul, an apostle written by Luke. Too easy on that one. It just makes too much sense. You can dig and do the research yourselves. You're smart people. Um, James, half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church, basically an apostle. Same thing with Jude. First and second Peter, apostle. First, uh, first through third John, apostle. Revelation from John, an apostle. They all come from the descending work of Christ, which actually leads us, I think, to a fun irony. Marcion's credited with the idea of inventing a canon, but in order to create a, a shortened authoritative canon, you have to have a longer authoritative canon. We had the rule of faith. We had the books of what we call the New Testament available in the second century. We have a consistent history. The apostles faithfully did what Jesus commanded. They went forth into the, into the world as they knew it, and they spread the gospel. They made disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all these things. Marcion had to reject that actively in order to get the addition that was edited that he held. We have a standard. And it's the same standard that Marcion had that he rejected. He doesn't come up with the idea of a standard and then we expanded on it. No, we had the standard and Marcion cut it down. This is our final warning. This was good for Marcion to hear and this will be good for us to hear. Go back to your Old Testament. Your wisdom literature is very, very clear. Do not trust you. Don't trust you. You can't be trusted. Why? You reject God. You've wandered away from him and his truth, you are, and the works of your hands are no good. Therefore, you need to turn to something that is both not you and objectively true and right and good. 
Welcome to the standard for your life that is God, supplied to us in His Word. Christ is the one who has given Himself for our sins. He is the final revealer of God, and that revelation is secured for us in Scripture, capable of bearing the brunt of our focus and need. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ because of the sacrifice that He has wrought. We trust in that, turning from our works and ourselves and trusting wholly and totally in him. To do otherwise is to wander down the road of Marcion. To make you, your brain, your strength, your wisdom, something about you, the cornerstone of your faith. It is not. It is Christ. Therefore, I submit to him. How do I know what I'm submitting to? They put that in his word. It is a book that was given by his hand-picked followers, preserved by faithful people who loved the message, the messenger, and the outcome, and they have preserved that for us, and we can trust it. We don't edit. We don't cut to pieces. We discern, and we understand, and we apply in submission to Christ. So, what have we learned today, children? God has revealed himself. We are to learn from God as he has taught us, not how we think is best. And you cannot repent if you have not submit. So, Marcion, fun, isn't it? All sorts of good stuff. Now, there should be a write-up on the website. I'll get that posted just as soon as I get back to my office to get that uploaded. Um, that'll be there where on the uh, practicaltheologyministries.com website. From there, you can sign up for our newsletter. Hey, May is out. It is on the website. You can check it out and read it. If you would like to sign up to have that delivered to you, fill out the form on the website. Give me your email address. I'll be glad to send it to you. If not, just, just keep downloading from the website directly and go from there. Uh, lockdown in north central Illinois is ending, which means ooh, 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 we might get some episodes with Lou back. He might be able to get out of his house again and be able to come and, and see us because you know he's, he's non-essential when it comes to church, apparently. At least that's what the government said. So we'll, we'll get to that as we... We'll talk about that when he gets back. But at some point, we should be getting some episodes back with Lou. Uh, in the meantime, you can check it out on the website. You can find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. You can send us comments and complaints. If you do, I'll be glad to respond to them. And in the meantime, read your Bible. It'll do you good. God bless.